In a few months, the world has rapidly changed. And we have an opportunity to use this moment to reimagine the world we live in forever. Powering transformation through bold thinking, big ideas, and brave action. This is Project Reset. Hello there, I'm Rick Edwards. Uh, our relationship with the spaces that we live in and work in is changing. For many of us, the pandemic has made us reassess what spaces we value the most and what we want from our environment. Uh, and that's no surprise, uh, really, given that disasters and, and crises through history have reshaped the way that we live. So the, the cholera epidemic of 1848 led to the sewage system that we still use today. Uh, garden cities first emerged in the 19th century and people realized the, the connection between nature and health and then peaked again after World War II. Uh, post 9-11, there was a renewed interest in rural living. Uh, and research is already showing that in our post-COVID society, the uh, topography of our spaces, social, work, domestic, leisure, um, are being re-examined and, and re-imagined. Uh, and so in this episode, we'll be asking what this means uh, for the future design of, of, of our spaces. What will our, what will our cities look like? How, how will they function? How will we, how will we use them? Uh, and what can we learn from the way that past events have shaped our current spaces? Uh, once again, uh, I've got a terrific panel uh, to answer these questions and more, uh, all of whom are thinking and rethinking and innovating uh, around design uh, and, and space. Uh, I think it'd be quite helpful to get you to introduce yourselves, uh, explain uh, what you do, uh, and then tell me uh, what was the most important space for you uh, over the last few months. Uh, let's start with Aisha. Hi, it's great to be here. Uh, so I'm based in Singapore and I am co-founder of an artificial intelligence solutions firm, which means that we use big data uh, from sensors, from uh, applications to create machine learning models that help companies automate their systems or to personalize their products for their customers. And for me, the most important room or space that I've been in is a small corner of my house. I have a little meditation room and I have some plants in it. And that's where I do some yoga and that's where I have no technology, um, but I have a lot of green and I have a lot of zen. A meditation room. I love that, Aisha. Uh, Melody. Hello. I'm here in London and I'm a senior associate at Saha Hadid Architects. We uh, focus on utilizing design and design technology in shaping the built environment. And we work across a number of scales from master plans to architecture, interiors, furniture and products. Over the past few months, I mean, I think it's inevitable that the space I've spent the most amount of time in, which is my home office, which is here, has really been a bit of a refuge as well as the space where I live on many different levels. And I've also rediscovered a connection with gardening. Um, after many, many years of living in the city without any plants or balconies. And I have a framed view of the city, which is quite fascinating. So I'm really, for me, always looking out on the window of the developing skyline. And finally, Alice. I'm Alice Rawson and I write about design principally in books. Uh, my latest book's called Design as an Attitude. 
And in it, I explore the new generation of digitally empowered designers who are pursuing social, political, environmental and technological goals in their work. During the pandemic, I formed a collaboration with Paolo Antonelli, the Senior Curator of Architecture and Design at the Museum of Modern Art New York, to launch Design Emergency. And it's an Instagram platform in which we're investigating design's response to COVID-19 and also the potential for design to redesign and reconstruct our lives post-pandemic. As for my favourite place during lockdown, I'm actually going to choose a favourite contraption, and that's my bike. I've cycled for many, many years, and I absolutely love it, but I've always been a functional cyclist going from A to B. It's been wonderful during lockdown and afterwards to cycle around East London, where I live, all the open spaces, the canals, down to the river, looking at amazing Hawksmoor churches. So it's been a fantastically practical and fun way um, to investigate my neighbourhood during this time. So in, in 2018, just over half of the world's population were, were living in cities. I think it was 55%. And before coronavirus, the UN predicted, predicted that in excess of two thirds of us would be living in cities by 2050. But that's all up for discussion now. What happened in London, I thought was, was particularly interesting during lockdown. Those who could afford to fled to the countryside. So this, this amounted to think about just under 3% of London's population. What does this mean for cities moving forward? Are they going to be deserted by the wealthy and inhabited by those struggling to survive? Or will they uh, adapt most quickly, in fact, to, to post-COVID living and become more desirable than ever? Uh, Aisha? Well, I think it varies a great deal between geographies. So I'm sitting in Asia. And in Asia, the tsunami of urban migration is not going to stop. Cities are much more than places where you work. They are a gateway to social mobility. There is education, there is healthcare, there is uh, basic energy, other kinds of infrastructure. So we will not see this change. People will not move back to the rural areas. And I do think that in Asia and Latin America and Africa, these emerging markets, we will see that the cities will adapt to pandemic-like situations, which we all now expect to happen at a greater frequency. But they will still be huge magnets for talent and capital investment. Of course, this may vary now in the US and Europe, where we do see uh, a more migration back to the rural areas. And um, that's largely because the infrastructure is there for telecommunication. And, and Alice, do you, do you think that the, the ability for many now to work remotely might mean uh, that we'll see, uh, as Aisha was saying, perhaps not, not all over the world, but in, in Europe and in America, uh, an exodus from, from cities? Undoubtedly, more and more people are going to choose to work remotely, at least for some of the time in future. And we've already seen this in the statistics post-lockdown. For example, in France, over 80% of office workers returned to work in their offices. In Britain, the percentage was less than 40%. But also, it's unlikely that cities will be abandoned altogether. They've always had a magnetic allure for us, and that will continue. Arguably, big cities in particular could 
actually become much more desirable places to live. At the moment, the big metropoli like London, New York and so on are absolutely jam-packed. They're overcrowded, they're over-congested and they're definitely overpriced. So particularly for young people, it's simply too expensive to live in decent places and work in them. So if the population does drift away from cities, those economic pressures will ease. So hopefully it will be possible for younger people to live more affordably and pleasurably within cities. I also think that we're going to see a big focus on a different scale of cities. So far, there's been a great deal of emphasis on the biggest ones. But in future, small and medium-sized cities, particularly ones in beautiful rural areas uh, with interesting historic buildings and of course, great internet, which is essential, will probably become more and more appealing, particularly if they've got good transport links. Do you think, Melody, that we are going to see, sort of almost irrespective of whether people leave the cities uh, in terms of where they're living, uh, but a lot of empty office buildings and shops because the, the, the way that we're, we're working and consuming was changing anyway, but has clearly been changed further by COVID. I personally see it the other day going down Oxford Street and it felt like half of the street was actually boarded up. And we see it yeah. in the news with large retail companies filing for bankruptcy. And so I think there is going to be this moment where we all have to assess where the future of retail will go and how these spaces will be used in the future and how can we reuse and adapt them for what we actually need more of, which is housing. Mm. There are challenges for adapting um, office spaces for residential. Very, very basic um, considerations in design which have far-reaching effects. For instance, the floor plate relating the core to the windows are often much deeper. So there's often the risk that there's less daylight afforded for the um, residential units and also the drainage that's also needed in terms of having a few T-points on a floor, having to be convert that into uh, a number of sinks and showers and bathrooms and kitchens for a number of different families. So, so how do you get around those problems then? Well, that's where I think the importance of the way a project is framed and uh, the way a project is funded and supported by um, whether it's the government or a developer or a partnership is really critical because without that oversight and without the ambition to offer good housing, then those situations can be taken advantage of. Important though it is to provide more affordable social housing, I think it would be a great shame if the principal change in our cities as office blocks close there is if more housing was built. Because socially and politically and economically, we have so many other needs, as we do from an environmental perspective. There's so much, for example, that imaginative cities could do in terms of greening their spaces. So in terms of office blocks themselves, why not turn them into city farms? There are plenty of encouraging precedents for that. And indeed, um, the rooftops of office buildings and other large buildings can also be used for agriculture. In Paris at the moment, an organisation called Agripolis is about to open the world's largest city farm on the colossal rooftop of a huge convention centre in Port de Versailles. In Singapore, there's a more industrialised version in Sky Greens, which is a vertical food growing farming operation. 
There are also very simple ways in which any empty spaces within cities and towns can be greened over and turned into small parks, which simply make them more pleasant places. People can meet there. um, The remaining office workers can have lunch there. People can play with their kids. So these are ways of beautifying our cities, of giving purpose to what otherwise would be rather desolate spaces, and of making a significant impact in terms of addressing the climate emergency. Some of the work um, for optimizing spaces can really be helped with data and artificial intelligence. So, for example, you know, there are hospitals that are often have long emergency queue lines. And part of the work that we did for a large hospital was predicting using historical data, um, you know, how long the emergency queue line would be on any given day so that of the year so that they could actually optimize their resources and also have the right rooms configured for the kind of ailments that might come during that time of the year. Once you have that, and now imagine that you have the optimal size of the hospital, and that could be the same for many other kinds of services as well. Couple that with a small ultrasound, which is about this small, which means that The mother doesn't need to go into a large hospital for her ultrasound, but somebody can go to her, an assistant nurse can go to her and do the ultrasound right there in her home. And the artificial intelligence can guide the assistant nurse in the diagnosis or prognosis. And also because of 5G networks, you can have a doctor over video streaming also be there. Now you've opened up even more space in the hospital that can be used for other things. And I, I think this kind of meeting the essential needs of citizens while dynamically optimizing spaces, uh, using insights that we get from data and technology and even using new kinds of technologies really opens up this really interesting way to reuse space. And then, of course, you have all your urban designers and your architects and your visual designers and um, your young musicians, and they can use that space, then maybe not all the time, but at times when it's not being used so that you don't have unused spaces, even in places like schools, hospitals, government buildings. I think that's very interesting to me because you get all these new insights with, uh, with data. Exactly like Alice was saying, I do believe that a lot of these initiatives have been um, in the foreground and it's just now that with the pandemic they become accelerated and they become maybe they become more visible to the general public. Um, Even if I can bring to light the city of the mayor of London established a commissioner for walking and cycling quite a few years ago already, and they proposed a 25-year plan to promote active travel. And what we saw then was after or during the pandemic, when they needed to start opening up the avenues for transport, it was then much easier to close down certain roads and open them only for pedestrians and cyclists. And these kind of initiatives are also being explored the world over with Car Free Day and examples where ordinary citizens can um, come out and they can close down their neighborhood roads and through a series of testing and community building, they can start to change the attitudes and create instances where this becomes much more permanent. 
And, and presumably persuading citizens that actually having their, their movements captured in, in an urban setting will be beneficial to them in, in the long run. That, that's quite a big obstacle, isn't it? It is because people are not educated properly about it. And they should be skeptical. People should ask these questions. I have a charity in Singapore called 21st Century Girls. And we teach girls the basics of artificial intelligence so that they can not only use it for their own career, but they can observe and question the AI that's being used in smart cities or in any products that's being offered to them. It is the right of every consumer and citizen to know how their data is being used to uh, to the extent in a way that's understandable. You don't need to explain very complicated models to people, but I think anybody can understand uh, logically how they can their data is being accessed, what the results are, and how they can potentially switch it on and off. At least that conversation must be had. Well, smart cities, as Aisha has explained, are very controversial, very ambiguous concepts. There are huge benefits to be had by using technology in a way that if it processes our data responsibly and securely, free from the threat of abuse, can enable us to move more efficiently and critically more safely through cities. And in theory, that could help to create a way of life that's actually much more efficient and fit for purpose than the one we have at the moment. But there are also huge threats in terms of this data collection. There's also a risk that if, say, the ownership of a technology company changes, the old owner may well have been very responsible and very particular with regard to safeguarding individuals' data. The new owner may not be. Exactly the same applies to political regimes. So these are huge imponderable risk factors that could cause very serious problems over the years. So in short, smart cities do offer benefits, but the use of our data does pose considerable threats. So the only way they're going to work and the only way they're going to get the sort of popular public consensus they need to really be applied on a large scale is if they're designed as intelligently, as sensitively and as responsibly as possible. So we can choose to live and work in them, to visit them without fear of the consequences. Let's go back a, a bit to um, talking about our, our living spaces and this kind of um, idea of a sort of mixed model where you have a communal living in a unit where you have shared resources, whether that's you know um, sports facilities or outside space, maybe even maybe even something like childcare. Do you, do you see us moving towards those kind of units more in, in cities and elsewhere? the patterns of our lives are changing. So whereas the home needs to become much more multifaceted and there's a lot more overlap in terms of children um, doing their schoolwork and parents working, as well as the living and the domestic life that happens there, or let's say even the digital shopping that happens at home now. But what that means is that the expectations for those destinations, for those physical spaces is now also evolving. But that brings up really interesting opportunities. So. 
For instance, libraries are no longer places to go read physical books. There's a really beautiful library in Helsinki that opened a couple years ago. And when you go there, you see lots of recording studios filled with kids making music and people learning how to sew and make 3D prints. And upstairs, where all of the books are laid out, actually right in the center under the large skylight is a big cafe. And so they become these spaces to gather, to create and um, formulate the communities that are than what people are craving outside of the domestic sphere. I absolutely agree. I think, you know, I first read about communal living in Alvin and Heidi Toffler's book, Future Shock, at 12, 15 years ago. And at that time, I thought, it, that's impossible. I can't imagine it. Yet more and more of my friends, and especially the, the younger generation, are living in these co-living arrangements that are popping up everywhere. And it's not just a Western phenomenon. Um, even in places like Pakistan, where we are building a campus for the uh, employees of our firm, we actually see a lot of them being interested in having uh, you know, smaller micro apartments, but then having a lot of communal living space where they can play um, table tennis together, they can cook dinners together, they can have barbecues together. This is really a phenomenon that's happening all over the world. And I think it has a lot to do with people really wanting to connect to each other as well. That And it runs counter the, to this idea of them being just on their phones, isolated from each other. There is a yearning to to connect. I think that also is what drives it, apart from the economics of it, of course, as well. Well, one of the many contradictions of the COVID-19 crisis is that at a time when we've actually needed one another, we've need togetherness, community, a sense of the communal and collective good in order to fight the novel coronavirus and find a way out of the crisis, we've also obviously been parted and many people have been left in severe difficulty because they've been living and working in communal situations which simply aren't safe during a lethal global pandemic like this one. So the short-term future of communal living and indeed communal working is fairly limited. Over the long term, though, there are huge benefits to communality. I mean, particularly for young people who are starting out, don't have a lot of money to rent or buy property with, and so really could benefit from buying or renting smaller spaces and having access to larger facilities. And communal living isn't new. It's not even something that began um, with the sort of hippie communes of the 19th 1960s and 1970s. It has a much older history than that. For centuries, of course, people had to live communally. So entire families in Tudor times would sleep in the same room. There literally wouldn't be partitions um, in their home at all. And then during the industrial age, homes became more segmented with different spaces designated for different purposes. But many of the greatest modern design experiments in housing in the 1920s and 30s were for communal living. And this continued in the post-war era. Trellick Tower, for example, in West London is a brilliant example of a partly communal way of living with its laundrettes um, and other communal facilities, games rooms and so on, a little library that the residents could share. Now, there's been a resurrection of communal living and communal working through companies like WeWork in recent years, the idea being that 
that you would buy or rent a private space to live in, but you perhaps share a kitchen, you'd share social facilities, swimming pools, spas, and so on at the top of the market, and much more basic resources at the bottom of it. And that is a cost-effective efficient, but also very congenial way um, for people to live. So I do think it has lots of potential for the future, but only if it's infection-proofed. Yeah, I saw this amazing Twitter thread uh, of lots of different potential usages for the parking spaces that are now vacant outside of people's houses. And there's all sorts you can do, isn't there? Yeah, there's a lot of um, community engagement in the public realm. And actually something that is also increasingly popular right now is this idea of shared um, shared surfaces. So where you have an intersection, instead they're actually removing traffic lights and removing signage. So instead of having cars being the center of planning, they're actually putting people back into the center of it. And Actually, the cars drive slower and they have to make eye contact and they end up becoming much more safe intersections for Mm. pedestrians, cyclists, cars to all be aware of each other. And it's about a shared uh, shared responsibility. I think this is a huge trend, exactly as Melody said, of moving uh, cities away from infrastructure focus, building focused, uh, technology focused, certainly in the smart city space where I do a lot of work, it's becoming more and more returning to being citizen-centered. And that means that the teams that work on it are very interdisciplinary. And traditionally, I don't think these teams have actually talked to each other enough. But now urban designers, anthropologists, user experience designers, because now you have digital interfaces along with physical interfaces. People like me and my AI team, we're all slowly beginning to meet at conferences and and in you know sessions together and starting to work on pilots together. This is very healthy, in my opinion, because that means that there's not a, a rigid bias just towards one discipline, but really you keep coming back to the citizen and the space as a place where the citizen finds joy. If I can add something into the mix also, um, beyond just the human, the kind of myriad of human users, but it's also thinking very much about the natural ecosystems that we're reinstalling into the city centers. It's not just about planting trees on the streets where there's houses, but what are the range of trees, the different species, the different birds and the pollinators and the different flowers, they all form a microclimate and they all form an ecosystem. And in order for that to be as sustainable as possible, we need to think about all these different aspects. It would be fantastic if urban planning did become more citizen focused. But sadly, in reality, there's very little evidence that that's likely to happen. I mean, most of us have had experiences within our local communities of so-called consensual planning, um, where random figures of neighbourhood support for this, that and the other project are produced. And yet you never meet a single neighbour who actually supported it. Um, I think if there was an open, transparent and genuinely consensual and communicative um, form of citizen consultation and collaboration, that would be fantastic. And I eagerly await it. So going out to eat or, or for a drink or whatever is clearly very different these days. You're signing in, maybe you're having a book, uh, wearing masks, disposable menus, uh, those individual sort of pepper sachets, uh, one in, one out for uh, toilets, and, and most crucially, far lower capacity 
for, for customers. So how are our social spaces going to evolve in a, in a time of social distancing? I think spaces now, there was a time before 9-11 happened. Um, and even before that, if you look at airports, you know, when our parents used to go to airports, they were no security checks. They would just literally saunter up to the plane and get in and sit down and fly off. But now there's so many security checks because of the terrorism that happened in the world. And similarly, as the world begins to come to terms with bioterrorism or pandemics or any kind of bio threats, that will have to be incorporated into the physical space. Does that mean there'll be sensors for chemicals, for um, some kind of pathogens? Will there be immediate testing? Will there be thermal cameras everywhere? And how will they right now when we go to an airport, there's somebody sitting there, there's a big thermal camera and they're sitting next to it or a small one and a big screen. But how can we make it just part of the design itself? I think that is the kind of thing that we'll see. Well, many of the biggest sacrifices that people have had to make during lockdown and since it in the new age of social distancing have been to sacrifice the sort of public collective experiences. All of these forms of entertainment and culture have had to be forsaken because most of them can't continue in a um, commercially viable manner um, with fewer people that are required for safe social distancing. And also there's a general nervousness for people to engage with them. So these are large parts of many people's lives that um, give them a great source of happiness, intellectual stimulus and enjoyment that we've had to give up. Now, there have also been some really interesting experiments in reinventing them so they are suitable for a safely social distanced era. Nearly one in five Europeans live in overcrowded dwellings. Uh, Britain's top five most crowded areas saw, or overcrowded areas, saw 70% more coronavirus cases than the five least crowded at the start of the pandemic. And we've known for a long time that housing is a public health issue. If you live in poor quality, cramped accommodation, you're more likely to suffer from a, a whole range of illnesses, you know, cancer, respiratory and cardiovascular diseases. But this pandemic, it feels like, has brought that into very sharp relief. So what can be done about overcrowding? I think what we're seeing is that people have become a lot more aware of space. They've become a lot more aware of constraints. Um, they've had to pause during the pandemic. And that has made us appreciate a lot of things, but also realize that some things um, are things that we consider a right when we live in a city. I go almost every day to the park and, you know, a place like a park nearby, near everybody's home is really important. Overcrowding and density is, um, is less of a priority in the emerging markets in Asia than access to basic infrastructure and services like education energy and healthcare. So it kind of varies also by whether you are in Europe or the US or you're in Asia or Latin America. But regardless of where you are, what we're going to see is that citizens, people who live in cities are going to demand certain things that matter to them because we've just become aware of it when we have been 
um, kind of trapped inside. I think COVID-19 and the after effects of the pandemic really have made us prize the parks, the greens, even benches around city centres that give us special spaces to go and sit, to chat with friends, to reflect on the day, simply to take a rest. And they will undoubtedly be more important parts of city and urban planning in future. I mentioned right at the start, Uh, how throughout history our spaces and and living have been shaped by disasters or or, or crises. So what have we got right in the past and, and what have we got wrong? Well, one source of optimism, however terrible and tragic COVID-19 has been, that if you look back historically, terrible tragedies and great crises and emergencies like this one have tended to unlock radical changes in the redesign of people's lives, which have often led to progress from which people have benefited for many centuries. For example, there were a terrible cholera epidemic in London in the 1850s, and this led not only to scientific innovations that prompted far better treatment of cholera and greater understanding of the disease, but also Joseph Bazalgette's great super sewer construction program that created a world-beating sewer system for London, which again lasted for centuries to come. So in so many other crisis situations, including, of course, the end of World War II, which led to extraordinary model modern housing programmes, the construction of new schools, new hospitals, indeed the welfare state. Whenever crisis has struck, if people have responded in in a responsible and productive way, they have forged a better way of life afterwards. Let's hope that's the case again this time. The concept of the dynamic spaces is definitely something that we're also very much interested in addressing. I think that designs, designers' responsibility is to adapt and continually keep up with the changing complexities in contemporary life. And part of this also means that we must harness the tools that we have. So where there's a lot of talk about AI and kind uh, the potential of machine learning, these are all just natural extensions of the tools that we've created in previous generations. And the importance comes down to the responsibility with which we use these tools and the intention and the ambition towards which we're, um, which we're using them to shape our environments. Um, at the end of the day, I think that as a society, the ways in which we collaborate and the ways in which we utilize our resources comes down to a... a a full understanding of the um, all the different layers and complexities of contemporary life. And that allows us to then create a much more holistic approach, in turn, hopefully providing a much stronger and healthier legacy for future generations. I think that design now is going to be fundamentally different because not only will we use different kinds of technologies to better design the buildings, optimize their energy usage, make them dynamic and uh, more tailored to people. But in fact, I think the most interesting thing that I'm seeing now is truly this idea of dynamic spaces. So for example, we were working on a new uh, strategy for uh, with an engineering firm that was constructing a new township in a country in Asia. 
and they were wanting to understand where to put the bus stops. But instead of really putting static bus stops, they made us do a whole lot of mobility analytics to understand how people move around the city. And we collected data over months using a variety of sources from students, the elderly, buses, scooters, taxis, walking. And we were able to work on one scenario where actually the bus stand was dynamic. It did not always have to be in the same place. It kind of met the needs of the individuals. But I think we'll see a lot more of that. Already in China, at one point, we were seeing these grocery stores that were literally vans that were moving around and you didn't have any um, you know, people at the checkout, but it was completely automated. And that as we learn when people move around the city, when they order their groceries, um, what you will see is that not only are people moving, but in fact, spaces are moving and reconfiguring as well. I think I'm going to ask you each in turn this. Uh, it's quite a big question, but try and do it in a, in a sort of pithy way. Um, what would your ideal city look like? How would we live in that ideal city? Start with uh, Melody. In the long-term future, what I would love to see would be a much more interconnected way of communicating and collaborating. It would be really fascinating to see how... Um, we can then shift the way that we collaborate and we understand and we communicate with each other and to be able to augment that and make positive changes in a much more efficient and a much more streamlined way. I think I would define my ideal city in terms of the qualities that I'd want it to champion. So it would champion a cleaner, safer, healthier, more responsible, more caring, more empathic way of living. And it would do that through its physicality, through the services it offered, through the way its technology was managed, and through the way it encouraged its citizens to live. Um, if you think of one architect, Le Corbusier, the great Swiss architect, who was, of course, one of the great modernizers of the 20th century, if you consider the extraordinary Cité Radieuse in Marseille, this is his model housing block, which is really more like a vertical village. So it's got shops, a hairdressers, a travel agency, a restaurant, it's got a paddling pool and a little art school on the roof, and extraordinary apartments, all angled so that their residents can make the most of the views of Marseille itself, an incredible city, the surrounding mountains, and of course the Mediterranean Sea. I think my dream city is one where, um, and you know, my PhD is actually on sustainable transportation, where there's much more biking and, and pedestrians on the street, where there's a lot of green. And I think that that is very important. I love what Melody said, that green is just not about putting some trees, but it's the entire ecosystem of different kinds of plants and uh, butterflies and bees and animals. I think for me, that is the ideal city. Uh, but in order to be that way, I, I think what it has underneath it is a lot of technology. So whatever is built is built in a sustainable manner, is built in a cost-efficient manner. And that is not just a theoretical thing that people aspire to, but they use prefabrication for that. They use proper modeling for that. 
Um, there is security so that people can walk in the street late at night. Women can do that. Um, and so can minorities. So on the one hand, there are cameras, but on the other hand, those cameras are not full of bias against minorities. So that means that there is a governance around the use of that technology as well. So something that is safe, harmonious, green, and facilitated by technology uh, while not being, uh, you know, while being governed in a proper manner. Okay, I think that's a, a good place to, to wrap things up. Thank you so much, Melody, Aisha, and Alice. Great to hear all of your thoughts and your insights. It's definitely uh, got me pondering a bit more about how I want to live uh, moving forward. Uh, and because we're all going through this together, sharing a common experience, but no doubt having very different perspectives on it, uh, I'd love to hear from, from you at home. Uh, give us your thoughts on any of the issues that we've raised today. So uh, are you ready to say goodbye to the city uh, and move to the countryside? Uh, has lockdown made you appreciate those shared communal spaces and green spaces and nature more? Would you want to live in a, in a smart city and be constantly monitored by the state if it meant that the community was, was healthier? Uh, so please do uh, speak up, comment on our socials, subscribe to our channels for more episodes of Project Reset. 